Welcome to Making Conversation, a podcast where we celebrate making in all its forms, from amazing stories of inspiring makers and people to behind the scene peaks of building a startup in the tech and craft industry. I'm your host, Ashley Yowsling, and today I'm talking with Adela Colvin, the founder of Lola Bean Yarn Company. When I was writing this intro, I was trying to figure out how to capture who Adela is and her passion for all she does and wants to do. But that's proven to be a little bit difficult, and those of you who know Adela can understand why. With an incredibly strong voice and spirit, Adela is on a mission to make the world a better place, whether that be for individuals, communities, aspiring business owners and makers, or her daughter Lola. Adela shares her story and takes us from the South to Spanish Harlem to Georgia and on into the future. She's one of the funniest people I've had on the podcast, and I left our call with my cheeks so sore from laughing and smiling, and I hope you do too. You can connect with Adela on the Making app and Instagram at Lola Bean Yarn Co. And with that, here's Adela. I know in school, and I'm talking as far back as like elementary school, first, second grade, I was always drawn to art class. Coloring was always something that I still do to this day um, with or without my, my six-year-old. I'm like, you want to color? She's like, nope, well, I, I'm going to. It, I've, I've always leaned towards the arts versus like the science and the math. And my great-grandmother, Laura, was a seamstress. Uh, where they, where my family, my dad's side of the family is, it's like the Southport Wilmington area of North Carolina. They do a lot of movie filming out there. Um, so, you know, they'd be filming things and uh, bring clothes to my great grandmother to hem or sew or fix. I remember one time she was fussing at Richard Gere, um, who was standing in front of her yard, stepping on a little tree that she had like planted, a magnolia tree. You know, so I remember like hearing stories like that, but um, she made all of my clothes as a newborn and continued to make me clothes until I was like 12, you know, because that's, that's the magic age, you know, where I got, I'm too cool for, you know, great grandma's handmade clothes. I want all the stuff that the other kids are wearing, how silly I feel now looking back. Um, but she sewed, she knit, she crocheted, she did macrame. Um, she made my dolls. She made me dolls that you would have thought looking at them were actual like Cabbage Patch Kids, but they weren't. She made them for me. Pound puppies. I had like a love of pound puppies. She made me like pound puppies. Um, there wasn't, she did embroidery, uh, cross stitch, like she did everything. And I can remember, and it's funny because it was around that same age, like that 12, 13 um, year old age, I went to visit my dad for the holidays and she gifted me my very first like little singer sewing machine that they made for kids. They still make it. I see it every now and again. And I was grateful and I was happy, but on the inside, I'm like, I'm, I don't, I'm not doing this. Like grandma, are you serious? Like, no, I'm, you know, um, but it's, it's always been there. I've always had like an affinity for creative. I just couldn't pinpoint um, exactly like where it started or who sparked it. I've just, I've always known it was there. Where was this moment where all of a sudden your creativity became your own? 
as opposed to like something that you were immersed in? Well, I think a lot of it too was, so for the first, for my first eight years, I was an only child. And my mom had me, she was 19 years old in the Air Force when she had me and then turned like 20, uh, two months later. But we sort of grew up together. Like she was definitely a mother, you know, she, she did the mother thing. But, you know, at 20, what do we know at 20, right? You know, so we were both kind of like growing up together. And when you're an only child, you, you need things to entertain yourself. So, you know, I remember her, you know, getting me crayons. And so I guess it would be my mom, right? Because that I do remember her like buying me crayons, um, the uh, watercolor, like the water paints, the paint by numbers, those types of things to, you know, give me something to do or to keep me um, busy because I didn't have any siblings. So that might be, you know, where it really, really first, I guess, started for me. So when did you first start a project on that sewing machine? I never did. You never did? I never did. <laughs> and I'm, I'm telling you, like, that is my biggest regret. And like, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty because, you know, she wanted to teach me back then to knit and to sew and to do all of these things. And I'm like, I am too cool for school, grandma. I don't have time for this stuff. And like now, as I'm like, you know, immersed into, you know, making, it's like what I would have known and where I would have been in terms of like my skill set had I let her, you know, show me back then. But I'm also a really big believer in everything happens for a reason. Um, you know, and that that's just what I chalk it up to. Yep, it would have been nice to, you know, have all of this knowledge and all of these years of experience. But I really think it probably would have changed my trajectory at some point. Everything happens in its own timing. Honestly, I think I'm just learning that in a really real way now, even though you say it your whole life, right? And mm -hmm. it's kind of preached to you as a child uh, and growing up. When you look back, I think the older you get, the more you look back at your life and like how everything kind of led to the moment that you're in now, mm -hmm. you have more endearment or respect for that journey that you had, which, yeah, maybe it has some regrets, but also maybe that was just what it needed to be to like yeah. spark that later on. Mm -hmm. The arts, whether it be music whether it be, you know, colors, painting, um, lanyards. Remember in high school or like elementary school, you'd make keychains, but like the lanyards, like I potholders, the little weaving thing, like no matter how far I strayed from the arts, I always wound up back in them. Um, you know, because there was a period of time I, I won't pretend that I had like this great glorious childhood. I won't say it was the worst either, right? Uh, but we had some hard times. You know, my mom uh, was a victim of uh, domestic violence and she wound up uh, discharging from the Air Force. We wound up uh, leaving Alabama. That's where we were at the time. And going back to New York, which is where she was born and raised and where the rest of the family was. And there was homelessness, you know, like mixed in there. It just dysfunction, poverty, food stamps, you know, all of those things. Um, 
So access to things for a, a good while wasn't necessarily there, right? It's like, you're a single mom with two kids. Am I going to buy a gallon of milk or am I going to buy my daughter a box of crayons, right? Priorities. Um, you know, so it almost, it was almost like I lost it for a little bit because, you know, it just wasn't there for me to do. But the minute somebody, you know, would put something, in, I'd go to a friend's house and she'd have like a friendship making kit, a bracelet making kit. Oh yeah, let's, you know, little things like that always kind of like made their way back to me or me back to them. Um, but it wasn't until, believe it or not, my early thirties when, you know, I really connected with and got back to like art and making, um, and that was it. So I guess I'm making up for lost time. People are like, you're so hardcore. You're always working and dying. And I'm making up for lost time. I lost, you know, like over a decade. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think my mom's side of the family, which is who I was raised by. I don't remember any art artistic people or anybody who no makers on that side, just my dad's side. Um, so that's probably another reason why I lost it for so long. Right. If you don't have people around you who are like into it and encouraging it, you kind of don't pay it any attention. You find other things to do. Um, so, yeah, there was a big gap where there was no making. <laughs> you said something that made me think about this thing that we talk a lot about as a team. When people's basic needs aren't met, how can we expect them to make? And I think this really came up in a big way when we started the app. And they're bringing like floods of acrylic yarn and like all these like kind of cheap brands on the platform. And I remember someone at some point said something like about that. And I said, you know, 80% of makers on the app are using those materials, those yarns, because that's what's accessible to them at this point. And mm -hmm. then it started this discussion about how people are actually feeling strapped in so many energy sources, not just money, but like just time and brain space and, you know, mental fatigue. And that's something that I've been thinking a lot about is how when we are so focused on just making sure we're okay in whatever capacity, there isn't time to make, but making is so healing. How do you create that awareness? It doesn't have to be this big thing, you know, like how can mm -hmm. we bring that in a healing way, even if in a small way, even if it's just inspiration, you know, and you're not even partaking in an actual craft. So I think what you're sharing is an example of, of that, you know, and yeah. how easy that is to lose, especially when social media wasn't, didn't even exist. It wasn't even up. a thing. This is, you know, before the, before the internet. <laughs> to think that the internet did not exist when we were growing up, you know, mm -hmm. it's kind of like a funny, a funny thought. <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> So when you transport yourself to your 30s and really kind of diving into creativity, what was this collective thing that happened that kind of brought that into your life? Because my mother was in the Air Force, we traveled a lot. Um, you know, so I've lived in places, Alsace, Oklahoma, uh, Huntsville, Alabama, San Antonio, Texas, um, predominantly, you know, in the South. And once she was discharged from the Air Force, she, 
she naturally, you know, you want to be closer to wherever your family is. And my mom was born in, in Spanish Harlem. Um, my grandparents, everybody was still in the uh, New York, New Jersey area. So that's where we um, wound up, you know, landing. But uh, you have so much, you know, like diversity and culture. Um, anything you could want at whatever time you want it, you can have it in New York City, right? So we fast forward and I meet my now husband, but you know, I meet Jimmy and because of his military travels, he wound up down in Georgia, a little town called Grove. Well, it's grown since, but a little town called Grovetown, Georgia. And I laugh with everybody when I say like the only thing here was like a gas station called the Golden Pantry. There was a Cracker Barrel and the new Walmart was like all the rage, right? So uh, because he had two children from his first marriage, it made sense for me to move from New York to be down here with him versus him, you know, being away from his children and coming up there. So I'm like, you know what? I don't have any children. My mom, you know, I talked to her about it. She was all for it, thought it would be great. So I moved down here with, you know, the, the Walmart and the, the Golden Pantry. And his job sends him because, you know, now he's no longer active duty. He is a civilian and they're sending him to Afghanistan as a contractor for six months. So you drag me down to the middle of nowhere. Right. And then you leave me here. So instead of, you know, finding things to do, I, I was sulking. I was on my sofa crying, watching episodes of Grey's Anatomy, you know, just miserable instead of like doing something productive, right? Uh, and we had a neighbor uh, named Bonnie. Bonnie Matichich was a retired uh, principal from Battle Creek, Michigan, who moved down here to be closer to her daughter and her grandkids. And Jimmy and her, before I moved down here, would look out for one another. Hey, I'm going to be traveling for a week. Keep an eye on, you know, keep it on the house, that type of thing. So she knew that he was going away. Now, while they had a relationship, I am very much a New Yorker, right? I don't need to know you, neighbor. Like, don't talk to me, you know. If you're, like, in distress, obviously, I'll pick up the phone and call 911 for you. But no, we. I don't even need to know your name. So... Um, well, not to go off topic, but the day we, you know, I got down here and Jimmy's like unloading my stuff, my boxes out of the truck, a car drives by with um, a woman in it who was probably our age and she waves at Jimmy. So I'm looking, I'm like, hmm, who's that? I'm like, you know her? Is that, is that one of your little friends? And he's like, Adela, this is the South. We say hello when we see each other. Oh. <laughs> um, Oh, okay. My bad. You know, um, I've since kind of acclimated and gotten used to it, but I was very much, no, I don't need to know anybody. I leave me alone. Uh, and I went to go get my mail one day and as I'm getting my mail, Bonnie is going to her mailbox to get her mail and very friendly, she, white hair up in this like little bun. She almost reminded me of uh, from the cartoons, the, the, the grandma that had Tweety Bird, you know, the little old beautiful white hair and this cute little bun. She was just a beautiful lady. And she just asked me how I was doing. And I said, you know me, oh, I'm fine. You know, let me get my mail. Why is she talking to me? And she says, I don't think you're fine. Maybe you should come over for a cup of coffee. Lady, like, <laughs> you know what I, I'm like, 
what do I have in common, right? And we all have like these biases and, and these, you know, pre, you know, preconceived notions. What do I have in common with like a 60, 70 year old white lady from Michigan? Why do I want to go have coffee with you? But my mom also taught me like not to be rude. You know, you don't need to be rude. And I'm like, well, hell, you know, I'm just going to go in and finish watching Grey's Anatomy and cry for the rest of the day. <laughs> so I might as well go have coffee. So I go inside, you know, inside her house and I'm looking around and she has Afghans laid across her sofa and her chairs, beautiful, like German styled curtains, uh, little crocheted and knit items, you know, that had to do with the season. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this stuff is adorable. Where do you buy your, um, you know, your, your accessories and your home furnishings? And she's like, buy. She was like, I made all this stuff. And I was like, what? She said, yeah. She said, you know, I crocheted that and I knit that. And she had a metal Singer sewing machine from 1922, you know, where she would do like her sewing. And she's showing me all of this stuff. And I'm like, I think I'd like to try to do some of this stuff. So she goes into her back room and she comes back out with a ball of white red heart yarn and a boy H crochet hook and a little book that said learn to crochet she said take this home with you read the book see if you can follow along any questions you have you just come knock on my door and I fell I fell so hard you know with that little I, I was doing my little chains and my single crochets and ripping it out because I wanted it to be perfect like it really um spark that was when the spark came back right because now I have something that's not depressing me like Grey's Anatomy right um to kind of keep me occupied and I have something at the end of it that I can see something tangible and I made a friend right An, a very unlikely friend that nobody would have you know in a million years I'm pretty sure when me and her walked around together they thought I was her home health aide like we used to make that joke all the time um but we wound up there was a senior center that she was in that she would drive to and, you know, hang out with her friends. I wound up volunteering at the senior center because of her and getting to know a lot of the seniors and then teaching them what she taught me. We went on a road trip to Michigan, her family, you know, back where she's from. Listen, I had nothing to do. My husband's gone. And she was like, you know, I really want to go to Michigan, but I really want to bring my car. She said, because there's some stuff I want to bring back and to ship it. And I'm like, you know what, Bonnie, let's go. Me and Bonnie got in the car and we drove to Michigan, stopped along the way, uh, got my first pair of cowboy boots and just all types of like things you would never in a million years expect, um, you know, to have happen. But we went to Michigan together. We would go grocery shopping together. Um, she would take me around and show me because she had been here a little a little while longer than I had. So she knew of like fun stuff and things to do. But when we went to Michigan, she took me to my first yarn shop. I had never been in a yarn shop. You know, she gave me the Red Heart yarn. And in my mind, okay, this is all there really is. Where do I get this? She tells me Michael's, Joann's, or Walmart. So that's where I go and that's what I use. When we walked into that first yarn shop and I started feeling things. Wait, cashmere, alpaca, linen, cotton, the color selection right now, I'm just not like, you know, uh, tied down with these like single colors. You have 
uh, gradients and, and all of these different types of fibers. And I was hooked. Like that is all it took. I hadn't even had a full grasp or concept on knitting and crocheting. And I was already accumulating, you know, my, my little stash, um, you know, from all of these little places. Once that happened, now, whenever you travel, whenever you go somewhere, what's the first thing you look for? A yarn shop. So I'm like, okay, when we get back home, I need to find my local yarn store because we have to have one. Even if it's, you know, an hour drive, hour and a half drive, I do it. Jimmy's not here. I have nothing else to do anyway. So I find the one closest to us and I have to specify there is a new yarn shop um, that has opened not too long ago in the same area. That is not the yarn shop I'm talking about. The one I'm talking about has since closed because I've shared the story I'm about to share before. And people have actually reached out to this poor yarn shop that's brand new. Are you the one who was, was rude uh, to Adela? Yeah, so I just, I need to say that. This yarn shop is no longer open. And in fact, the new yarn shop had an issue with this same yarn shop as well. It's pretty funny. But, um... So I seek out my local yarn shop and I walk in. I didn't even get my second foot in the door. And the owner looks me up and down and she tells me that her bathroom is for customers only. First thing out of her mouth. I've been dealing with like racism and discrimination uh, my entire life. And I don't care what anybody says, no matter how much you deal with it or how often you've experienced it. It hurts like the first time every time it happens. And I remember thinking, okay, she sees my Converse, my ripped jeans. Uh, I had a hoodie on and I had like this big Afro. And in her mind, people who look like me don't, you know, knit, crochet or have any business in her store. Um, so I turned around and I walked out. I went home and I started surfing the internet, YouTube looking up like different yarns and I would buy, you know, online from like Jimmy Beans or Webs or whatever. But I, you know, looked up how to dye yarn. Maybe I can do this myself. Watched a couple of videos, got me some Kool-Aid and Easter egg, you know, little pellets from the Easter egg uh, dyeing kits and experimented. And I'm like, go big or go home. I think I did that for like three days. And then I'm like, okay, bring on the acid dyes. I need a tabletop warmer. Like there was zero to 100. There was like no real, like, maybe you should really practice before you start investing all of this time and money. But that is what kind of catapulted me back into making Miss Bonnie. Um, and that incident that happened at that yarn shop. And, you know, an expression I heard a lot growing up was, you know, that you can turn shit into sugar mm -hmm. and and that's exactly what i feel like you know i did crying tears right now you have me laughing so much <laughs> um first off what you just said about zero to 100 that that is me like to a t and in fact last night i don't know what got into me but i the kids were in bed and i said to david my husband i was like what is like the one thing you love about me the most and I, he's like, mm -hmm. where, did, where did this come from? I was like, I don't know. We've been together 20 years. I was like, I've never asked you that. And he's like, how literally sometimes you get your mindset on something or you like discover something. And even though I look at you like 
you're nuts because like Mm -hmm. you just literally bought like everything you needed for that thing or it's like your brand new like career or hobby or whatever like you dive in so committed and fully and deeply and you just make it a reality he's like I don't have that ability and so I love that you share that because I am by what I see now and then hearing that story I'm gonna guess that you're a similar way you can fail that's the worst that can happen right it, it didn't work and then you find something else um my my husband is is very much the opposite. Like he'll have something he may want to do. He has to write a thesis. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, he has to weigh the pros and the cons. He has to look some stuff up on a couple of websites first, look at reviews. And I'm like, "Bruh. Like let's get this show on the road." Like, you know, and I, we we kind of now we kind of like balance and level each other out because I am very much, you know, if I feel I'm on, I work, I go on my feelings, mm-hmm. right? And if I feel it, I'm doing it. I'm and there. if it doesn't work, oh, well, you try something else. We'll come up with an idea and he starts doing his thesis thing, writing <laughs> lists and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I'm already over here. I've already like bought and he'll come up to me and I'll be like, oh yeah, I already bought it. He's like, wait, what? We were just yeah. discussing this. I'm like, the discussion's <laughs> over. Like, I'm already going for it. So this is pretty much how everything in our life has come to be. Is like, mm-hmm. it originates as an you idea, know, but I go for it. When people are, are different in those ways, um, I've noticed now where like my husband, he's he still does all of those things, but every now and again, he'll kind of let loose. And I know like that's my influence. And then every now and again, like, I'll stop. And I'm like, wait, let me think about this for a minute. <laughs> you know, this, this is, you know, so we're kind of like rubbing off on each other mm-hmm. and kind of leveling each other out. But, um, yeah, it's always, you know, oh, wait, this piece of equipment can help me do X, Y, ordered. And he's like, well, why don't you read the reviews first? What if there's something different? Or No, somebody said this will help. I got it. That's it. We do discover that temperance for sure. I think that's just mm-hmm. a natural part of relationships. I wonder too, my husband was in the Air Force and I wonder if um, maybe the personality for that or like vice versa, there is like a very like measured approach. 1000%. And it's so funny because every now and again, I, I know exactly how he he must feel when dealing with me because my daughter is very much the same way. And it drives me loony. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, no, Lola, wait, we need to think about this. And he's looking at me like, oh, we're thinking today. <laughs> you know, this is new. <laughs> but, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, I love that, though. You know, the tenacity. I mean, all these things. And what you were saying, like, the worst that can happen is you fail. But I think somehow through systems through family systems through every kind of system we've developed this fear of failing and failing Mm -hmm. is really just a mindset I mean that's kind of what I've I guess come to a point in my life where failing is only defined by you you know can only be defined by you I have a friend named Mary and she has lived many lifetimes in this life and she Mm -hmm. said to me once when I was about to take a big leap, she said, all that you're worried about right now that you could possibly lose by doing this, it's not you. 
you still have you at the end of this. And so you Mm -hmm. and those skills that you have will just move on to the next thing. And you don't lose Mm -hmm. that. That and I think a big part of it is and I don't I don't take this lightly and I don't say it. It's not me. I'm not trying to disrespect anyone who, um, you know, may be struggling financially right now. But I think also that when you grow up in poverty, it's like I've been through hell and back. You know what I mean? So me trying to die yarn and failing at it still pales in comparison to some of the other things that I have been through and gotten over. You know, it's this this is not that big of a deal for me because, you know, I remember living in the homeless shelter and, uh, you know, my mom not sleeping and staying up to watch over us as we slept, you know, to make sure nothing happened to us. I remember, you know, people being uh, making fun of us for having food. Like, I remember all of these like truly awful things, Mm -hmm. you know, failing at something is not truly awful, you know, or at least I don't feel like it is. So, you know, I'm, I go full throttle, Mm -hmm. full throttle because I've, I've been through and overcome worse than failing at dying yarn. And you have some time to make up for, like you said. Yeah, I do. Lots of time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's this excitement that I was feeling, like, as I was hearing your story, I I think all of us have a, a story and many stories as part of it. But when you were talking about you and Bonnie uh, taking the road trip and going to the yarn shop, like I could feel that feeling. And I <laughs> I f- have felt that feeling even to this day. Like sometimes I'll get so excited discovering a new needlepoint shop or like, you know, a bead shop or whatever it is. There's this point and maybe it's as makers we see the potential and so that's like all of a sudden you can barely contain it because you walk into a place where you've just had this huge expansion of like what you think Mm -hmm. is possible a room of new possibilities yeah (laughs) i still feel that way when i walk into a yarn shop a yarn shop that i might have even been in 10 times before um i definitely i feel that way people oh but you dye yarn. What does that mean? I still like to, you know, support other makers out there, support local yarn stores. Um, and I tell people all the time, like, whenever I work with my yarn, it's like eating dinner at home. Whenever I use somebody else's, it's like treating myself to dinner out. You know, it's like a treat and it doesn't feel like work. You didn't have to make um, it. <laughs> yeah, that. Um, so I absolutely, I still, I still get that feeling whenever I walk into, you know, any type of making space. It doesn't even have to be yarn. I, I could walk past, we have a pottery place downtown that I could walk past and I get excited because it's like they're taking something and turning it into something else. And that process is amazing. You know, I get that feeling too, even in just creative space, like discovering something online. Like it doesn't even need to be a physical space. Like, I don't know, last year, someone when we first launched the app someone had posted all these like line of cut carving stamps mm-hmm. and things like that um and I just went full throttle on that like I went and just got like <laughs> and I came home with all these carving t- I go into the woodworking shop David's like holy <clears throat> shit Ash like okay aren't you gonna see if you like it first I was like I know I will so I'm gonna do this there was a whole world that opened up and 
feel actually that way a lot on the app. Instagram used to be that for me and it's not as much that anymore. Um, and I think mm-hmm. it's, I think it's that discovery. Discovery is so important. Definitely. So what happened next after you bought everything you could think of to die? <laughs> And Jimmy came home. What happened when Jimmy came home? That's what I want to know. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. The one thing I can say about my husband is from day one, he has always been supportive. His eyes might get big, you know, and he might rub his temples a little bit. But it's always if this makes you happy. Because all he's ever wanted is for me to be happy. Because he saw how much of a struggle it was for me when we first, you know, when I first got down here. So he's like, anything that will keep her happy and keep her here because I love her and I want her here. He's like, I'm going to back it. So I bought all of this stuff. And even then, I bought this stuff not with like intentions on selling. But just because this is fun and I want like all these tools to be able to do different things. And I would be in like various Facebook groups, like crafting groups. And I'd be like, y'all, look at what I made. Just, I'm not soliciting. I'm not even thinking about, you know, selling to anybody. And people would be like, oh my goodness, that's beautiful. How much do you charge for it? And that's when the light bulb like went off. Wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. You'd pay me for this? Now I can fund my hobby. Right. I, I, I can sell some of this and buy some more and I can continue to like have fun and not like drain our bank account. And a part of it, too, was uh, when I came down here, Jimmy was uh, in a position to where um, he was working and me going out and finding a job immediately um, wasn't something that I really had to worry about. He just wanted me to kind of get comfortable and acclimated first. Uh, but I also I've been working since I was 15. And it was weird for me, like being down here and let's say it's his birthday. I'm buying him a birthday gift with money from his own. It just felt weird. It just didn't feel right to me. And I'm like, well, I can use this again. I can use this little hobby, you know, so I can have some like extra cash for like special days and things that I may want to surprise him or my family with. And that's as far as I really was thinking about taking it. But then the demand came and I had to, you know, run out and buy more supplies and more bigger machines and and that type of stuff. But um, I remember Jimmy came home and he's just like, wow, what is this? And I explained to him, you know, what everything was for. And he wasn't like as excited as I was about it all. But, you know, he took a little interest in it because, you know, hey, my wife likes it. Let me see what she's so excited about. But at first, like he'd come in and he'd say things like, my God, my house smells like a sheep's ass. I'm in the kitchen doing this. So he's like, so what's for dinner? I'm like, yarn. Because that's what I'm in here cooking and I'm not moving anything. I am like really enjoying this right now. Um, But he was like always, always. I imagine that was quite a shock a little bit. (laughs) It was for him. And then I wasn't even using like citric acid back then. Most of the stuff I was using was like vinegar. So like wool and vinegar and he comes home from work and he's like, my God. (laughs) And I'm like, listen, just get used to it, buddy, because I have a feeling, you know, this is this is going to be a thing. But, you know, aside from like his little funny comments or remarks or whatever, um, he has always been like super supportive. He bought me like my first big case of um, bear yarn 
you know, to kind of like get me started. Um, so yeah, he was surprised, but you know, what can you do? So when did it become a thing? When the demand started to grow, like in these different Facebook groups where people were like, you know, hey, I want some of that too. I want some of that. Okay, well maybe I need like an Etsy shop or something. And I opened up an Etsy shop. I went and Adela's Crochet Cottage was the name of my business um, back then because <clears throat> I didn't dye, just dye yarn, you know, before that I would crochet things and sell them, you know, sell my, my makes or whatever. Uh, but I went and got like, became an LLC and uh, set up, you know, we had to get me out of the kitchen. So he moved me into the garage, right? So he could eat actual food and have somewhere to cook it. <laughs> and um, yeah, as the demand grew, I opened up my Etsy shop and I would have shop updates. And I look back now and I cackle uh, Facebook memories. And it's like, packaged up all of the orders from yesterday's shop update and it's like six packages and I'm like wow <laughs> you know but I guess when you're when you're just starting <laughs> you know that's a big deal and it was a big deal you know but I look now and it's like you know I have the mailman he has to come with an empty truck so that he can load all my stuff in there but it just it just cracks me up and it it it, it does bring me joy just to see like the growth you know and it was fast it was fast it wasn't you know i remember like looking around uh at you know other dyers and uh how long they've been doing these things and uh sometimes they'd give me unsolicited advice which i can't stand um you know well when you get to this point make sure you do x y and z and i'm like well i'm already at that point and they're like there's no way no i am you know, do I need to pull up the numbers? Like, you know, just how fast it was. It was unbelievable to me. So I imagine everybody else was probably like, yeah, right. But it happened really, really quickly. We believe that the simple act of making can transform your life and in turn change our world. This is why making exists. It all starts with inspiration where you're inspired by people, by places, by experiences, a beautiful photo, a soft wool, a kind heart. These are the things that motivate us to make. Making is here to disrupt systems, systems of oppression, systems that only benefit certain groups of people, and systems that extract. We are here to challenge the narrative of profit over people. We believe a company can be founded for the purpose of good and change the world for better while also creating opportunity at scale. Makers are tired of the monoliths, the few companies that comprise our only choices of how we connect, how we transact, and how we learn. Makers are ready for a better alternative, and that is what we are building. Becoming a Bright Collective member helps us accomplish this. Visit makingzine.com to learn more. When did Lola Bean become Lola Bean? Me and Jimmy had been married for five years. Um, and we, you know, I had my two stepsons who I love to death. They, they drive me batty, but I, I love them nonetheless. Uh, and we did want, you know, a child of our own. And uh, we had suffered uh, two losses. And after that, 
I wasn't even, we weren't trying, you know, I'm, I, that is painful. You know what I mean? And I didn't even know, like, if I wanted to even try again and deal with that again. And, uh, you know, I just moved on. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. There are plenty of ways where, you know, I can find fulfillment and enjoyment and, you know, help. I got my stepkids. There's always, you know, adoption or volunteering. So I turned, you know, outward and, and did things, you know, fulfilled that, that kind of void that way. And then one day in October of 2015, something felt off. I don't know what it was, right? I didn't know what it was. I'm like, something's weird. And it's like 10 o'clock at night. He's watching CNN. And I walk into the living room and I'm like, I need you to run to the store for me. And he's like, for what? And I'm like, a pregnancy test. I I've never seen him move that fast in my life. He runs to the store. He gets it. I take it. Sure enough, I'm pregnant. We schedule our first appointment at the um, OBGYN and I'm nervous. I'm just like, I'm waiting for the disappointment. You know, oh, sorry, Adela, but it's not viable. There's no heartbeat. You know, all the things. I couldn't even look at the monitor. Like he had to look for me and I just looked at him. And I remember, oh, I'm getting choked up. You know, the, the tears rolling down my face because I'm just like waiting for it and waiting for it. And the sonogram technician says, oh, there it is. And I, I, you know, got the courage to like look and you see like that little heartbeat on the screen. And I was like, wow, you know, I've been pregnant. I've never even gotten this far, right? So... You know, we left, we were just like giddy with excitement. I was nervous, but I was still like really, really hopeful. Like, okay, we got it this far, you know, may maybe this is, this is it. And I downloaded a pregnancy tracker. And the first notification that it gave me was, you know, your baby is the size of a bean. And from that point on, that's whenever we referred to the baby, it was how's, you know, how's the bean or the bean is hungry, the bean, this bean, bean, bean. Fast forward, I have, I feel, but I'm biased, you know, one of the most beautiful kids I've ever seen in my entire life. I give birth to this little girl and her nickname is still Bean. And I just remember like in my making before, I would share what I made. I It wasn't about, I, I wouldn't share like my face a whole lot, right? Because there was still that, that stigma and, um, some of the experiences I had had in the past were like, if somebody black is making or doing something, it's cheap. It's not as good as if it was a white person or because you're black, I can haggle you for pricing and, and, and try to, you know, pay less. So I avoided that. I'm, I was part of a, um, a small like kind of indie dyer uh, conglomerate type thing in the very beginning. And they wanted pictures of us like to put on the website. And I'm like, do I have to? Because I, I I didn't want to, I, you know, but I have this little girl and it's like, she's beautiful and she's black. And she needs to know that she is beautiful. And we need to see more images and people, black people, and I need to make this world, right? This is a big part of, you know, who I am and, and, and my brand. 
Okay, I want to make this world a little better than it was when I found it. I feel like I'm failing because this world is, is shit right now, you know. But for, for her, you have, you have to try, right? I have to try at least for her. And I made the decision to go from Adela's Crochet Cottage, which was a horrible name to begin with, but nobody told me that. <laughs> Could you imagine typing that into a, a web browser? Adela's Crochet Cottage dot com. Um, so I took her first name and her nickname, Lola Bean, uh, and I rebranded and uh, had a designer at the time um, because I've since redone all of my, my branding and stuff. But it was a caricature, a, a cartoon image of her, you know, and I thought that it would be a great way for her to see her worth and her beauty and for other black makers in this community, almost like, you know, a bat symbol. We're here, you know, it's safe. I, I understand you if you're looking to buy from, talk to, work with somebody who's like you and understands all of the nuances and what it means to be, you know, black and a, you know, a black woman business owner. Hey, we're here, you know, um, I'm making a space for myself and I have no issues or no qualms with helping, you know, you make your space, whatever I can do so that we all, you know, have a piece of, uh, this industry and this art and, and the making, you know, we all deserve to be here. So my daughter was the catalyst for like the rebrand. And I think, I think it's gone well. <laughs> I think, I think it's all right. <laughs> um, you know, the reason why I do a lot of the things I do and say a lot of the uncomfortable things that people won't say, even though I know I'm going to get like backlash and hate mail and, and all of those things, because it's like, maybe if I talk about them enough, maybe if I raise enough money, um, things will change and she won't have to do all of this super uncomfortable stuff that, you know, we're doing now, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, we have to keep going, right? Like when we cease to keep going or when we give up hope, I suppose, what hope is there? Yep. So that next chapter of Lola Bean Yarn starts. What happened from there? I was doing really well, you know, I, steady growth. You know, the numbers were going, were going in the right direction consistently. And then 2019 happened in the, uh, in the, the, the world, but more specifically, you know, in the fiber industry, textile industry. And I call it the black wave where you have people who swoop in because they want to support black businesses after like something traumatic has happened in the black community. Uh, you know, the squares go up, all of that stuff. So I would, I would be lying if I didn't say that, like that didn't impact my growth. Um, it actually became too much. Like it became like way too much. Like I was like drowning in offers and uh, requests and, you know, we'd like to carry your yarn. Um, and it never, a lot of people talk about, you know, uh, the guilt that people feel and how they try to use their money to uh, deal with that, right? We feel guilty about, you know, white privilege or white supremacy or 
we don't have to deal with the things that you've had to deal with. We feel guilty about all of these things. So we're going to use our dollars and we're going to support you to kind of like make ourselves feel better. And then it dies down and all of that support goes away until the next traumatic thing happens in the black community. It never went away. It never went away. And I think I don't want to say because this is, it, it would sound awful and I don't mean it. I'm trying to figure out the right way to say it. Like, I don't want to say like, oh, you know, I'm benefiting off of these horrible things that have happened, you know, to people who look like me and my husband, you know, in this world. But I saw it, you know, I saw all of the people coming to to support and I definitely made sure that I presented like my best self my best product. Now that I now that I have your eyes on me because I just don't want you here just because, you know, just because I'm black. I want you to like what it is that you see once you do come here and see me. And I made sure that I put out a product, you know, that was um worthy, you know, that I felt was worthy to have the Lola Bean name on it. You know what I mean? Um that represented me, represented my family, my brand and consistently did that but also stood true to myself. I wasn't going to, I'm not going to dance. I'm not going to shuck and jive for anybody, right? I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm going to be me. I'm going to lead with kindness, but I'm also going to tell the truth. I'm going to tell my truth. And if it doesn't work for you, that's okay too, right? I'm not for everybody. I don't want to be for everybody. You know, I kind of held on to that. You know, once that wave came, I wrote it. I wrote that wave, you know, because it's like, you can feel bad about getting all of this attention because of all of these horrible things that have happened. Or you can take that attention and turn it into revenue and then give back to the community to help fight and combat all of these horrible things that are happening to your people, right? Are you just going to sit there and be like, no, I don't want anything because I just feel awful because of the catalyst of why? No, you know, um, and that, that's what I do. And I will, you know, I will continue to do. You made a comment about how this black wave came, but then it didn't go away. And do you feel like over the last three plus years, there's been like a collective awareness that has moved forward? Do you feel like something has changed I think I, I, I'm not going to lie and say, no, we haven't made any progress whatsoever. You know, if you can go out there and tell your story and influence and help change like the heart and mind of one person, that's something, right? So I definitely think there is change happening. I just don't think it's happening fast mm -hmm. enough. Like we're still losing so many people every day for so many different, you know, reasons and, and different, you know, uh, injustices and stuff like that. There's change, but I do know a lot of it is, it, I, I know a lot of it isn't genuine. You know, I know that specifically, but I don't want to sit here and say, oh, it's all bad and nothing positive has, no, there, there's been some change, but we definitely still have a whole lot more work to do. I, I bring these things up because this is something that we as a team spend a lot of time talking about. And, and actually it's why making app even started just looking at the systems and realizing that like we can't actually change the systems, but what we do have mm -hmm. the power to change is create something that creates more opportunity. And going back to those basic needs, it's like when you create opportunity for people, 
specifically opportunity to be seen and to make money and provide for themselves, even if it's just like a side income or even if it's just like a side, you know, hobby, if it contributes to helping like basic needs being met of any person, mm-hmm. then we can also spend more time on focusing on how we can create change. Like nobody has ever said like, you know, oh, we want things for free or we want things for nothing. We just want a level playing field. We want the same opportunities, right, that you have, uh, you know, the same access to materials, resources that you have, or at least me anyway. I, you know, I don't speak for all black women, but me, that's all I want is a level playing field. You know, you give me the same resources and the same opportunities I'm okay. You won't, you won't, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't be mad or upset or, you know, yelling half as much as I'm yelling, but I don't think people are thinking long-term. People think like, okay, I support a black business because, you know, I, I, I bought a skein of yarn. That's nice. But then when you disappear, you know, you gotta be, what is it? It's a, it's a marathon, not a race. Like you, you have to consistently show up over and over and over again, or it's just not going to work. You know, and I feel like I'm like yelling into a void some days and people just don't, you know, seem to understand it or they do. And it's just like willful ignorance, you know, there's a massive responsibility that isn't yours to bear. There's a massive responsibility that's white people's Mm -hmm. responsibility to disrupt these systems because we're the ones that created them, created them. <laughs> privilege from them. I mean, it's, it's endless. And I think mm-hmm. we had a conversation, I don't know, a number of months ago, and I can't remember what happened that was the precipice for this conversation. But whenever something happens in the world, the whole making team, we get on Zoom and we have a conversation mm-hmm. because our team is very diverse. Everyone comes from different backgrounds and it these things land like and hit and trigger and everything in a different way. And it's really important that we all can hear that and like create space for it, but also decide as a team of like how we want to talk about these things or like how we want to show up in the world. And I remember getting (laughs) on this call and being like, everyone was hurting. And I remember just being so angry and, and feeling bad at first about like being angry. And I, at one point was like, everyone needs to be so fucking angry that they want to change something. Mm -hmm. That's what I want in this world. Like, you know, yes, like I want joy and happiness and all these things, but sometimes anger and frustration are the things that motivate people. Absolutely. How do we make white people angry about the right things, not the wrong things? And, um, (laughs) you know, I mean, I'll be honest, like, I'm a bit of a renegade. Like I'm here to disrupt the system with making app. And I, <laughs> my background, like I've worked in the tech industry for a really long time. And just as a white woman experience, this level of patriarchy and all that within there. And to me, it just doesn't seem like there's any other way. You know, here we are talking about yarn. We're talking about knitting. We're talking about all these things. And uh, Marina on our team, And I talk about this a lot about how people constantly, and even yesterday, I was just like, really, people are still saying this? Making isn't political. You don't know what you're talking about. Like you literally have no idea what you're talking about. And I think 
we just have to like keep saying it. I, I think if that's one thing, it's like consistency, right? They say consistency around everything, consistency about your marketing, consistency about like showing up. Mm-hmm. You have to bring that same level of consistency to this shit, like, you know, being angry or creating opportunity, but also the joy. It is tiring. You have a, an incredible role in all of it. Like this is a long game. A hundred percent. Absolutely. I can't just not say nothing, right? I know a lot of people all the time, they're like, you know, it isn't your responsibility to teach. And I'm not out here to teach. Like there are, you know, black people in this world who've gone to school for a really long time and have, you know, a, a, a beautiful, wonderful education and actually teach about these things, right? So I don't want to say, um, you know, I've, I've done all of that, but I've lived, you know, 41 years as a black woman. And, you know, uh, however many years I've been making, you know, that many years as a, a black woman, that's a maker. So what I can do is I can share my lived experiences with you. Um, and that is definitely a way of, of teaching. Sometimes people just don't know. Right. You know, sometimes people live these really sheltered lives, these really sheltered, you know, and they don't know. And it's something simple, you know, as simple as me, you know, talking about turning down opportunities to go visit different yarn shops because the areas they're in aren't safe for black people. Wow. I never thought of that. You know, so while, you know, you have these educators and these teachers who are out here doing, you know, the work, I think that if more uh, black people and makers of color just share their lived experiences it is another, you know, great tool to help maybe change the, you know, shift the dynamic and, and, and the way things feel and seem as of late. And, and that's what I do. That's all I can do. You know. What brings you joy in making? What do they call them? What do they have? Like, what do they call it? A process knitter and a people who knit because they actually want to finish and those who just knit because they just like to like knit or crochet. Um, I am definitely, I just like the motion of it. It's almost, you know, it's med- it's meditation. I listen, I go on Netflix or like Discovery or Hulu and find me a good true crime docuseries with like eight episodes and like grab my knitting. You know, some people like go to the spa. No, like after like hour three, I'm like, I feel great. You know, the tension is like gone from my shoulders. I'm more relaxed. I not that I think I'm like this mean person all day, but I feel nicer. Like my spirit feels lighter. You know what I mean? So um, that's definitely the meditating part of it. The repetitive, you know, the, the repeating over, you know, it, it definitely soothes me. Um, sometimes I finish. Most times I don't. You know, I have a pile of projects. People are like, why do you buy so many project bags? Because I cast on a lot of projects and I need somewhere to keep them mind your business. Okay. You know, but, um, I, I have now, now that I've slowed down on the the work end a little bit, I am really enjoying finishing things now. Like even weaving in the ends, who am I even, uh, you know, blocking, I pull out my blocking boards and, um, I've gone, you know, up until recently, I've gone like a year and a half without finishing something. And I'm talking about even like a hat. Like, I just didn't finish it because I've just been that busy. 
Um, but I've been like taking some of that time back and like finishing things. And I'm like, well, look at you go, girl. So, but it's it's the process for me is is where I find the joy. Have you ever gone back to a sewing machine? Listen, I have a sewing machine, don't know how to sew. I have a ladybug, don't know how to spin. I have an e-spinner, don't know how to spin. I have, I bought, what do you call that punch? Mm -hmm. Punch needle? Bought a whole bunch of that stuff, never done it. I have a whole coffee table, when you open it up to the compartments, full of cross stitch, don't know how to do it. You know, but I'm determined. I'm like, you know, when I retire, I got things to keep me busy. What you're telling me is that we made the making app for you so that you can learn all these things. <laughs> so you can take all these classes. Probably. <laughs> Prop because I bought beads because I'm gonna make jewelry. <laughs> you know, I think we we naturally it it just spills over. It it spills over. You're you're never just um, you know, uh, one thing. I was when I was talking to Jimmy about reaching out to Blackwing, um, about like the the notebook mm -hmm. and and stuff like that, and he's like, I'm like, it's it all spills over. The writers, the people who journal, I promise you, you know. And I'm like, go look on my my um my little cubby there. I probably have like 15 different journals. Haven't written in them yet, you know. But it all spills over. Uh, so yeah, I have tons to learn. I really want to learn how to sew because I'll see like cute bat. I don't know how to sew. I've been consistently getting fabric in every other week for like four months now. I don't know how to sew. Why am I buying fabric? It spills over <laughs> for the making app. <laughs> what is it that you're most looking forward to, even if it hasn't been realized yet? Well, ultimately, you know, I'm, I'm really excited that we're starting to look at an outside space because I really want to be able to teach black students how to dye yarn. Which is why, you know, we I want to get out of this, you know, the old house, have it, you know, redone, furnished and everything so that, you know, you can, when somebody wants to learn, if they want to learn at, you know, Lola Bean School of Dying, whatever we want to call it, they have somewhere to stay. They don't have to worry about paying for a hotel. We have, you know, uh, sort of like camp, like dying camp. You know what I mean? You have room, board, we'll make sure you can get around, that type of stuff. So I'm really, really looking forward to that. It's It'll be a little while yet, you know, still got a lot to do. Um, but I'm going to be, you know, all of those businesses, Lola, Lola Bean, how can we support you and other black businesses? I'm coming for you because I want you to sponsor students, you know, I'm looking forward to that type of stuff. And I find myself at one point, uh, dying yarn and having successful shop updates was, was pretty fulfilling, right? People love what I do enough to want to buy it. Um, but I'm starting to find more joy and more fulfillment in the fundraising part of it. And it's like, granted, I have to pay my bills, right? And I have to, you know, feed my kids and, and, and all of that stuff. Uh, but ultimately, I would really like to build upon the fundraising, maybe become some sort of nonprofit branch off of Lola Bean, you know, to where we can just do more for those who have less.
The biggest of thanks to everyone involved in this week's episode. I hope you'll join me each week as we talk and learn from more fascinating makers. For podcast notes and transcriptions, visit our blog at makingzine.com. Have a wonderful week.